So today is the last day of our full day of our meditation retreat. And also is the last day of the year, 2011. End of the year, a good time to reflect on our lives. Even though uh, today, last day of the year, tomorrow, first day of New Year, yeah, these are just labels we put on. Uh, in the end, it's just another day, isn't it? <laughs> but for convenience uh, in our society, we have a calendar and we have days of the week and days of the year. So we say last day of the year, first day of New Year. So traditionally it's a time we think about life. Uh, some people make their aspirations for the new, new year. Uh, sometimes they review the old year, the year that's just passed. Think about what was good, what was not so good, what was right, what was wrong in our lives. And then make aspirations for the new year. Yeah. Often it's you know, what, what you're going to do better. Uh, what you need to adjust or change, habits to be given up, uh, bad habits, good habits to be started or taken up, maintained. So we have New Year's resolutions. So at the end of a Buddhist retreat, you often get people saying, well, now I'm going to go away and every day after this retreat, I'm going to practice meditation diligently. And it lasts a few weeks. And then one excuse, another excuse, this happens, that happens. And uh, a few weeks later, oh, all faded. <laughs> Many New Year's res resolutions don't last so long. But hopefully... Uh, you will have learned something on this retreat, uh, more about yourself, more about the teachings, and that might help you to make a wise resolution, or at least just set your mind in the right direction for the coming year, for the rest of your life. One resolution or one resolve we might make is to draw closer to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, what we call our refuges as Buddhists. Uh, the three refuges. When you come into a monastery and you wear white, follow the rules of the monastery like we have been on a retreat, and the word for a layman, laywoman who does that, they say upasika, upasika, upasaka. Upasika means one who is close to the Buddha. Close meaning you know, one who listens to the teachings and tries to put them into practice in daily life. And so a retreat and coming to the monastery, it's a way you can draw closer to the Buddha the teachings. Um, 
at first we start off with the externals. So we think of the Buddha, or we think of maybe the Buddha statue behind me. Uh, we think of the historical Buddha, the person we've heard lived in India 2,500 years ago. And the life story, you may have read the life story of the Buddha, heard certain um, incidents and events from the life of the Buddha. That's the external Buddha. And it's important, uh, it's also helpful to read the story of the Buddha here, how he lived, what he taught. Um, statues can be helpful. It reminds us of the Buddha, reminds us to uh, think of the teachings. Some people find it very calming. You know, it's a meditation just to look at a Buddha statue. Or when you're meditating, even with your eyes closed, sometimes you think of a Buddha, a statue that you've seen that makes you feel calm, peaceful. And you can focus on that. Or people come in the, to a, a hall like this, they, we say, worship the Buddha or pay respects. So they bow, prostrate, offer candles and incense. Um, it brings up a sense of reverence, respect, thinking of the Buddha, what he stands for, his own personal story, but also the qualities of a Buddha. The three main qualities we remember when we think of the Buddha are the purity of mind, so a mind that's completely free from suffering, free from, we say, mental defilements, kilesa, so that's all mental states and thoughts rooted in greed, anger, delusion. The Buddha, through his practice, freed or liberated his mind from those mental states. So there's the purity and the peace, the purity of the Buddha. There's the great wisdom of the Buddha. And the Buddha was a great teacher. He not only understood his own mind, how to purify his own mind, free his own mind from delusion and suffering. But he could also teach, he could teach others, very good at knowing other people what they need to hear, what they need to do to further their own practice, to understand their own minds, to free themselves from suffering. It's a great wisdom. And the Buddha said, you know, the things that the Buddha knows are innumerable, more than you can imagine, more than the best supercomputer. <laughs> whatever the mind, whatever the Buddha turned his mind to, he could know. So he had great knowledge, well ahead of his time, you know, in terms of science and geography and all those things. Astronomy, wherever he directed his mind, he could know things. So... Just for example, you know, the Buddha, somebody asked the Buddha, what shape is the world? Because in those days, people believed the world was flat. You keep walking, eventually you just drop off the edge. Uh, but um, the Buddha said, no, the world is round. He gave the example of a little fruit in Thai, they call it makampom. Little fruit, a bit like gooseberry. He said it's round like that. And people are thinking, how on earth would the Buddha know that? The Buddha can direct his mind, maybe he can even 
take his mind out of his body, float up and see the world, look back at it, see how it's round. Uh, so often in science and history we say it wasn't in, until a few hundred years ago that people discovered the world was round. Well, the Buddha was already saying that thousands of years ago. That's just one small example. But the Buddha, what he said one time, he's walking through the forest and he was asking the monks questions about the practice and talking about Dhamma and he said, you know, he picked up a handful of leaves from the forest floor and he said, what's more, the amount of leaves in my hand or the amount of leaves on the forest floor? And the monk said, well, of course, number of leaves on the forest floor, much greater. And the Buddha said, what I know is equal to all the leaves on the forest floor. You know, I know a lot. And he wasn't, being, he wasn't bragging, being boastful. He was just being honest and true. And the mind of a Buddha knows innumerable, innumerable things. What I teach is equal to the amount of leaves in my hand. As he said, I just teach what you need to know to free yourself from suffering. It's just this much. You don't have to know everything there is to know in the world. So even Buddhist teachings, which can often seem a little complex, a lot of philosophy, a lot of knowledge to acquire, gain. Even the Buddhist teachings themselves can seem a lot to have to learn. And some people enjoy learning they study, they read the books, they study, they think about it, which is fine. And if that, you find that helpful, it's good. But the Buddha said to what you really need to know, the essentials are just equal to what the number of leaves in my hand. You need to know your own heart, your own mind in the present moment and know where stress is arising, suffering is arising. Suffering comes through attachments, so you have to learn to see your own attachments and let go of those attachments and thereby suffering will end. And you just need to direct your attention to your own mind in the present moment and that's where you can end suffering. So not, not a lot, you don't need a lot of knowledge. Now the Buddha said he teaches, teaches suffering and the end of suffering. The most shortest explanation of what Buddhism is about. It teaches what suffering is, to know that and then how to end it because nobody wants to suffer or have stress. That's the wisdom of the Buddha and all his teachings over 45 years are about that. They're explanations and descriptions and advice on how to practice the path for the end of suffering. And they say all the teachings are equal to 84,000 Dhamma Khandas, Dhamma teachings the Buddha gave, so a lot more than most people will learn in a lifetime. And there are a few monks still living uh, in Asia who can remember all the Buddhist teachings. They can chant the Pali, they've memorized it, and they can translate it. But they're very few because it's a lot to learn. But again, he didn't say you have to learn all of them. Just learn what you need to know to understand your own mind and how to live in this world and free yourself from suffering. So all these 84,000 teachings reduced down to just this one point. The last quality of the Buddha is uh, great compassion. 
in which he displayed, he had his wisdom, he had his understanding how to free his own mind from suffering. He had great insight into uh, what suffering is, what its causes, the end of it. And then he was able to understand other people, what they need to hear to free themselves from suffering, to give them the right advice at the right time, in the right way. Uh, and out of compassion, you know, he devoted his life, once he was enlightened, it was 45 years he took walking around India. In those days, you know, they walked barefoot, there's no transport, not even shoes. And walking barefoot for 45 years, uh, ordaining monks and nuns, establishing monasteries, but also teaching people all over. Um, many people became enlightened hearing his teachings or practicing having heard his teachings. And the compassion of the Buddha is still here today, isn't it? Uh, you're all here today, we're all here out of an interest in the Buddha and the words of the Buddha, the, the Buddhist path. We get a lot of happiness, a lot of understanding from it. And that's all coming from the compassion of the Buddha. I say, I, I reflect on this every day because I'm a Buddhist monk and Buddhist monks are beggars. We don't have any income or money and yet we're able to live in the world because people out of their faith in the Buddha and his teachings support monks. And they're willing to bring food and other things to support the monastery and obviously we share what's here with everybody but we're able to live like this because of the goodness of the Buddha. So when you reflect on it, it brings up great gratitude. You know? Gratitude to the Buddha for having uh, pursued the path and gone through all the difficulties, reaching enlightenment, and then gratitude for having taught that path to others. And it must be good because it's still around in the world today. You know, if the Buddha's teachings weren't weren't valuable, they weren't you know very correct, uh, then we wouldn't have remembered them. We wouldn't keep practicing them today, would we? We'd have ignored them or let them go. But the fact that they're still here 2,500 years after he died indicates, well, there's some quality to them. But the important thing, when we say uh, upasika, upasika, one who is close to the Buddha, what we're really doing is we, we take the external teachings and the form of the religion, the ceremonies, the ritual, the books, the techniques of practicing meditation, all of this, and we're learning to internalize it. You're bringing the Buddhist teachings into your own mind, investigating them, understanding them for yourself. So we're not even just simply believing what the Buddha said. He actually said, don't believe what he says, just blindly believe it. Um, he said, take the words of the Buddha and investigate them, prove them for yourself. So in that sense, very scientific basis of teaching. You know, the proof comes through your own experience. And Venerable Sariputta, his, they say the wisest disciple of the Buddha, was listening to a talk one day that the Buddha gave. And there was a member of a different religion came to visit the Buddha. And he was just watching how the Buddha taught, what he said, how they did things in the monastery. He was interested. And probably 
thought his own religious system was better than the Buddha's. He's coming to sort of see if he can find fault with the Buddha and his monks. And at the end of the talk the Buddha gave, um, the Buddha turned to Sariputta and said, you know, everything I've said, do you believe me? And Sariputta said, uh, no, I don't. And this ascetic from another religion was astonished. He said, how can that be? How can the leading disciple of the Buddha say, no, I don't believe my own teacher? You know, any other religion, if you say you don't believe your teacher, it's heresy. You know, maybe they kick you out, <laughs> chase you away. <laughs> but the Buddha turned to Sariputta and said, oh, that's correct. You're right. You shouldn't just believe me. So that's a very important point. You know, the Buddhist teachings aren't just to be believed. Obviously in the beginning you might believe them. You say, mm, it sounds correct, sounds right. But he said, don't just stop there. You have to investigate and take them into your heart, in your practice, in your daily life. And prove whether they are really correct through your own practice. And Sariputta said that. He said, I'll only believe these teachings when I go away, I practice with them, and I find that what you said is true. It matches with my own experience. My experience and your experience seem the same. Then I'll believe what you say. And the Buddha said, that's correct. So this is you know, pointing to the fact that we really understand the Buddha and his teachings inside, in our heart. It's not just an external or superficial religion or religious belief system or uh, anything like that. It starts like that, begins like that. But to really deepen our understanding, we have to listen and then take the teachings in and start practicing them, looking for ourselves in our own hearts uh, from day to day. And that's why you know, when you come on a meditation retreat like this, it's very useful because you're looking at the Buddhist teachings, hearing them, looking at them, investigating them in a very concentrated way. Every day you practice meditation, sitting, walking. You practice mindfulness where you're focused on uh, different meditation objects, focused on the breath, calming your mind down with the breath developing insight into the nature of experience, seeing our experience is impermanent. Uh, it's not self. We have discussions on what is self, not self. That's correct. You know, We should discuss the Dhamma, we should um, raise our doubts, we should question what we believe in, what we see, what we find. That's what meditation is. And a meditation retreat gives you that chance. You know, often, too often we get stuck into the sort of externals again. We say, oh, I come on meditation retreat, my mind should be peaceful. Every day I meditate, I get up early, I sit meditation, I do walking meditation. My mind should be peaceful. I came here to get samadhi, to be peaceful, to get enlightened. And we all wish that that will happen. We hope everyone will get enlightened. But... The starting point is obviously not peaceful, it's not enlightenment, is it? The starting point is you take the teachings and you have to start investigating them, practicing mindfulness. If you're not yet experiencing enlightenment and your mind's not yet very peaceful, there must be a reason. 
that's what you're looking at. Why is it not peaceful? What's not happening right? Um, we have to look at our minds, and that's that's the hard part. Because as people find on their retreat, they wake up, come and meditate. For a while they have some clarity, and then oh, a lot of sleepiness, dullness. If it's not sleepiness and dullness, then it's a lot of restlessness, agitation, mind thinking too much. If it's not thinking too much, there's some pain, and we get upset with the pain. It's almost like just one thing after another. <laughs> That's the reality, isn't it? It's only out of all that. That's like the, the, the fertilizer, the nutrition for the tree to grow, the tree of enlightenment to grow. We have to start with that. We have to learn to look at our own minds, our own experience, and then work with it. You work to bring up mindfulness when there's no mindfulness. Bring up clarity out of confusion. Um, bring up more peaceful states of mind out of the unpeaceful states of mind. You know, we have to work at it. Um, it and sometimes it, it, we get results periodically. Sometimes it's, it's very difficult. In the difficult times we have to practice patience. And sometimes patience alone is enough to see the end of a lot of suffering. As we heard this morning from Ajahn Chah, you practice patience, you're meditating and your suffering comes up and it just seems to grow and grow and grow and get bigger and bigger and your mind is just sitting there. But if you're patient, you're willing to stick with it, it grows and gets bigger and bigger and then like everything, it dies, it passes away. You have birth, aging, death of your suffering. Because <laughs> it's an experience that is impermanent. You, know, you have a pain, say, for example, you have pain in your leg as you're meditating. You sit there, it gets more and more, bigger and bigger, more intense. But if you're patient enough, you're willing to keep establishing mindfulness, Knowing that pain, you might find the pain just breaks, it bursts and disappears altogether. Goes through its cycle, it reaches the end of its cycle and it's just impermanent, disappears. Or maybe some mental stuff, suffering, you're very dull and sleepy but you're willing to work with it. And you push on, you sit there, keep trying to establish your posture, keep trying to bring up awareness. Maybe the sleepiness gets really overwhelming, so overwhelming you're falling all over the place, nodding, completely unaware of what's going on, but you're willing to sit through it and work through it. Eventually you manage to sit up straight, bring back awareness, your mind brightens, and then maybe that whole uh, state of sleepiness just dissolves, completely dies away. That's what Ajahn Chah meant by letting things die. He's let them go through their cause, they become impermanent states of mind that arise, pass away. And patience allows you to do that. You know, if, if you're not patient, you'll never see anything because you'll move on in your mind. If you're sitting with some suffering and you're not patient, well, you'll get up, you'll go away, distract yourself. But if you're willing to work with it, you're willing to say, okay, I'm going to sit through this one hour of meditation. I'm not going to go away. I'm going to work with it. You find a lot of suffering comes up and then it goes away again. And if you've been patient enough to sit through that, you'll see, oh, this mood I had, it's just a mood. It's just a thought came and went. 
you know, maybe very upset about something. You know, we get upset our meditation. Sometimes we have memories that upset us or we hear sounds, annoying sounds or different things and we get very, very upset. But if you just sit and watch it, keep establishing mindfulness, often it just goes through its course. Your mind gets tired of being upset. <laughs> You're just watching it after a while. Oh, I just let go. Can't be bothered being upset anymore. So the mind goes back to peacefulness and you've seen it. You've seen it get upset. You know, the birth of being upset goes through its course. The aging of being upset. Then the final death of being upset. Oh, it's gone. And probably at the moment, few of you are upset. I don't know, but I assume few of you are. But probably you've all been upset in your life before this. So that just proves if you review your life, you review 2011, you probably can't even remember how many times you were upset in 2011, how many times you got annoyed, how many times you're upset, disappointed, frustrated, depressed. Many times. But where's that all gone now? You're right now, all that suffering has gone, hasn't it? It came up and it went away again. That's the nature of, of any kind of mind state. It's impermanent. So at the change of year, 2011 into 2012, you can say uh, farewell to all the suffering of 2011 and just say, well, oh, it came and it went and that was the end of it. Impermanent. Or it could be just in one meditation session. Uh, you're meditating and just in one hour or half an hour you get some agitation, some different thoughts come up disturbing you. Could be the sounds, sound, loud sounds near you while you're meditating, whatever. But you're willing to be patient, establish awareness and reflect on it. You can see how these are all just impermanent phenomena come up and go away again and you don't have to grasp at them you don't have to become that way you just notice it as, a, as, as an experience of mind as we all have our karma you know, we've, had, we've lived in this world a long time and our karma has generated many things you know, we've got many attachments we have families and friends and work and we've been in this world and been involved with the world for many many years so to expect all of that to just fade away in your mind to be completely peaceful in one meditation retreat maybe asking a little bit too much but to establish some mind, more mindfulness than before in a meditation retreat we can do that to understand the nature of our suffering more clearly than before so at the end of the year and the end of a retreat you can review back what you've uh, done in this year, the good you can feel good about, you, know, you can be honest, say there were some things you did right, did, did well in your life this last year and you, you, know, you should recognize that, appreciate that and say, oh this was good, this was the right thing to do, I should continue on with this. Other things we may be, mm, that's something to be uh, given up, changed, adjusted. And this is a good time to review these things. And this process of reviewing our mind, our life, you know, this is bringing you closer to the Buddha. And you can use the framework the Buddha, the teachings the Buddha gave. You know, he gave us teachings on dana, generosity, 
sila, in virtue or morality, uh, and bhavana, meditation and the cultivation of the mind. You can use that framework and say, well, in this last year, all the dana, the sila, the bhavana I did was good and it brought some good results, but maybe there's more to be done. So next year you can make your resolve, well, I'll do more dana, live in a more virtuous way and develop more meditation and put more effort into that. So you have a good framework. The Buddha helped us have a framework for seeing what we need to do. But we have to review the details. You know, each, each of us, our lives are different. One person has to work on one thing, another person works on another thing. We all have to look at our own minds, our own hearts, and see what we need to do. But that's the way you're bringing your mind back to the Buddha. Is the Buddha really is these qualities, you know, purity, wisdom, compassion, in your own heart. You have to find ways to develop them, find those qualities and bring them up. Then you're really coming close to the Buddha. You know, we say one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. One who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. You know, the Buddha is really the goodness within our own hearts. It's not just the externals, those things outside. It's, the, it's what lies within our own hearts and we have to find that. So maybe I'll just uh, give these uh, words of encouragement at this time. We still have uh, the rest of the day to carry on practicing, uh, sitting, walking, meditation. We have a session tonight for those with the energy. We'll go all night, bring in the new year uh, with meditation, and Dhamma, tea, and um, go through till 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Anyway, I'll leave it there.